0: Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I am Frank Emsbach, producer of Madison Labor Radio and a retired member of AFT Local 223.
1: And I'm Joanne Powers, a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, Industrial Unions 630 and 450. On today's special edition of Labor Radio, we will bring you a special report on the United Auto Workers' stand-up strike against the big three auto manufacturers, Stellantis, Ford, and General Motors. Incidentally, this is WORT, listener-sponsored community radio, so I should remind our listeners that your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible.
2: He's out to cheat us Money
3: speaks for money The devil for his own Who comes to speak for the skin and the bone What a comfort to the widow
0: The UAW employed a unique strategy of striking individual plants from all three manufacturers at once. They also held public discussions on social media with the members and supporters detailing their demands and strategy, including public announcements of which factors would be struck each week. This was a huge departure from past practice and designed to bring union members in as meaningful participants rather than merely spectators of distant secret negotiations.
1: Jane Slaughter is the longtime editor of Labor Notes, now retired. Slaughter has been reporting on the UAW for many years. Labor Notes provides a voice for those within the UAW fighting for democracy and to bring the UAW back to truly representing its members. On October 8th, just as General Motors reached a tentative agreement with the UAW, she spoke with Labor Radio reporters Greg Jabosky, Keith Steffen, and producer Frank Speck. As UAW members and General Motors were voting on the new contract on November 16th, MSPEC also spoke with Dania Ferdinandson, a UAW member since 2006. She originally worked at Delphi, a GM subsidiary, which went bankrupt after being sold to another company. In 2016, she began working at GM Toledo, Ohio Propulsion Systems, which manufactures transmissions and drive units for a variety of GM vehicles. She is also the Education Director of UAW Local 14, GM Toledo.
0: Ferdinandson was enthusiastic about the new contract.
2: As a new hire, like I said, I can speak on both spectrums. As a new hire, it's historical gains. It's a historical contract. I've never seen anything like it in all my years. And on the outside looking in, the contract's incredible. Great raises. We got a lot. On the flip side of the coin, from a legacy perspective, we were looking for recovery of pensions, recovery of seniority. You know, we worked those years, we earned that and they just came in with the swipe of a pen and took it away from us. So we were looking for regaining that. I know at least I was. Did I think we would get all of it? No. The fact that we got Cola, I can't believe that either. Considering he's only been in office about seven months, he's done an amazing job of trying to turn around what has been done wrong to us for decades. Hopefully in the next contract, we'll be able to address the seniority and pension issues that I feel was a lot of the no votes because they wanted that. I don't think anyone is disputing that it's a historical contract. However, how I look at it is the historical gains are clawing back our historical losses. That's how I look at it. We took historical losses and we're just now starting to gain that back. It's the best contract
3: we've seen in decades.
0: Slaughter elaborated on the union's gains and compared them to earlier contracts.
3: These contracts are extraordinarily rich in terms of money. And that is because the new administration in the union said they wanted to make up for all the decades and decades of concessions that the union had given, especially in 2007 and 2009 when Chrysler and GM were threatening bankruptcy, huge concessions were made. New hires from that point on came in at literally half the wages and no longer were going to get pensions or retiree health care that the union had negotiated in the past. So there was a huge deficit to make up and very few wage increases were given during those years. There was a 10-year period when workers in the first year, the older workers, got no wage increases at all, literally. So in this contract, they got a lot. For example, if you're a so-called temp worker, which is the lowest tier at any of these three companies, but they're not really temps, they really work in that capacity for years, maybe up to five years or more, by the end of this contract, you will go from maybe $18 or $19 an hour to over $42 an hour, literally life-changing for people in those lowest paid jobs. People in the second lowest group, what we might call the tier two, people hired after 2007, they also see a huge jump, different depending on different plants, but as high as maybe an 85% wage increase. The people that have been suffering in these plants all these years, the tier one workers are getting an 11% wage immediately and a total of 25% over the life of the contract. Very good in terms of comparing it to any other wage negotiation that you see in the United States, although not as good as if you compare it to what they lost over all those years of
0: concessions. Well, that's just money. I mean, we're talking also about a structure. Did the tier system disappear here?
3: It's not completely disappeared. It's huge chunks were made in that tier structure, but not completely because they still did not get pensions or retiree health care for the second tier workers. And that's a big disappointment. But in my opinion, it was completely predictable because those two things are hideously expensive for the companies, very much deserved by the workers, but the companies resisted those things very much. What they did that was a giant increase in the 401k contributions that the second tier workers will get, the companies give 10% and the workers are not required to match that. So that's a very, very large 401k contribution. Some people think the first tier workers might even be jealous of it. So that tier still exists. You'll still hire in as a temp, but then you have to be made into a permanent employee within nine months. That time will count toward what they call the wage progression, it used to be eight years. Now it's three years. So within three years, you will be at the absolute top pay, which, as I said, by the end of the contract will be over $42 an hour. So there's still a wage progression. It'll take you a little bit of time to get to the top wage, three years. But you can get there, whereas in the past, you could never get there. The temp wage is now going to be, I believe, I think it's twenty-three dollars an hour. It used to be sixteen or seventeen dollars an hour, so a big jump for them. But they get almost all the good stuff. They get union representation. They get signing bonus. They get profit sharing. They get all the things that are good in the contract, including the protection of the union. It's just that their wages will progress over the course of three years till they get to the top.
0: The contracts also included the reopening of some plants and the inclusion of other plants in the master agreement. As a result, Stellantis will reopen their 1,300-worker plant in Belvedere, Illinois, and add a battery plant.
3: My understanding is, yes, the, the reopening of the Belvedere assembly plant for a vehicle and the EV battery plant nearby, all that will be under the master agreement. A little more complicated, General Motors has a joint venture battery plant in Ohio. It's called Ultium. It's with a South Korean producer. That was organized by the UAW recently. That plant, all the workers in that area, this is the Lordstown, Ohio area, that plant was shut down, that famous plant. All those workers had to move away. They will have the right of return and come in as full top wage master agreement GM workers. The new hires in that plant We'll have to start at a lower wage, 75%. The UAW could not force GM to bargain over this Ultium plant legally because it's a joint venture. It's not part of GM. But they used the pressure of their strike and GM came to finally say, yes, we will put these people under the national master agreement but at a lower wage. So that was as far as the union was able to go. But they consider that very good, going from nothing, essentially, to being under the master agreement and they can build on it in the next contract.
0: And what about Ford?
3: Ford was slightly less good. Ford was the very first one that was settled. They have two already existing plants and the agreement was that they could be brought under the national master agreement once a majority of workers agree So that'll be easy. Those people will come under the National master Agreement. They didn't get that for some other battery plants that Ford is in joint ventures with. So the union is going to have to try to organize those workers the old-fashioned way. However, I would think that with the strength of this new contract, that should happen (laughs) pretty easily.
0: Included in the contract with General Motors will be the construction of a new unionized electric vehicle plant, Ferdinandson commented.
2: I think that's an amazing thing. People did not think that that could happen, and President Fain got that. I just can't believe he even got it into the contracts. I commend him for that and his negotiating teams for being able to get the EV work under the umbrella because that's going to be important. People might not see it right now because it's, it's kind of minimal right now, but in the long run, that's going to be very important that we were able to get that under our master agreement.
0: Slaughter notes that one of the major issues addressed in the new contracts is that of temporary workers. The contract with Ford limits temporary workers to 8% of the workforce, all of which moved to permanent status within nine months.
3: To me, this was a huge step forward, the union trying to put limits on how many temps could be hired, because that was a big issue over the last few contracts, and the companies continually violated it, and the union let them and workers were very disappointed that if they were temps and they thought they had been promised that they would be made permanent and then they weren't. So putting a cap that now will have to be enforced is really important.
0: The contracts extend the union's right to strike to include issues of product placement and plant closings and also include some language related to outsourcing, but Slaughter doesn't have much faith in that being enforced.
3: The no strike clause says you can only strike over a couple of things. One is production standards and one is health and safety. Those are local strikes on the local level. But now the union has the right to strike over plant closings, but also over product placement and investment decisions. There may be some language on outsourcing, but frankly, I am skeptical of any such language because there always is such language and it's always violated. The company always finds a way to get around it. This is still capitalism, and I think the companies are going to keep trying to not pay highly paid workers as much as they can.
1: By November 17th, it was clear that the contracts would pass at all three companies. However, despite these significant gains, there was some substantial opposition among rank and file voters, especially at General Motors.
3: It's been very interesting to me to see how high people's expectations were raised. These contracts contain four times as much in terms of money as the previous contract, and of course, much, much more than those concessionary contracts. But people were believing so strongly in this new UAW leadership that they wanted more. Some, let me just say some, the majority are voting yes, but a large minority is disappointed that they didn't get $40 an hour immediately instead of four years from now or that the second tier didn't get their pensions and retiree health care. That would have been huge. So we're seeing in some plants a larger no vote on the contract than might have been expected just because expectations were so high.
1: The UAW victory had immediate effects across the industry, especially at non-union manufacturers.
2: Well, as we all know, in the auto industry, Toyota and Honda immediately started giving raises. So unions set a bar, and non-union companies, they try to keep the unions out, but those employees of Toyota, Tesla, and everyone else that just started dishing out raises, that company could have done that for you all along, and they didn't. So because of the unions, it forced their hand.
3: I'm told by a regional director of the UAW here that their phone is ringing off the hook with calls from non-union autoworkers. And you know there are, I don't know exactly how many there are, but probably... Somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 in the United States. They work for Mercedes, Hyundai, Toyota, BMW, Nissan, Tesla. There's more, dozens of these plants, mostly located in the South. And as you said, Toyota immediately raised its wages. I don't know if the others will, but they say the next job is to organize those plants.
0: Slaughter stressed that all of these changes were made possible because of brand new leadership in the union due to the UAWD.
3: As you know, probably, there was hideous corruption in the UAW, not just of the embezzlement type. There was plenty of that, but also lots of collusion with the companies, all these concessions that I described to you over the years. Top leaders finally got caught by the feds with their hand in the till. Thirteen went to jail and were kicked out of the union. And the members got the right to decide whether they wanted to elect their own leaders rather than having them be chosen at a top-down controlled
0: convention. But that's a little little quick there. The members got the right to decide. It's been a 15-year campaign in some ways. Could you talk a little bit about that?
3: A group formed in 2019 called Unite All Workers for Democracy, UAWD, specifically with the purpose of campaigning to get the right to vote. And there's a very complicated procedure in the UAW Constitution where you call a special convention and you could vote to change the Constitution. It looks like a real long shot to me. But then when the feds intervened, this UAWD put forward their view and argued to the government monitor, we don't really want the government staying here forever, monitoring us. What we want is the right to control our own affairs. And for that, we need the right to vote. And so the monitor put on an election among the members. Do you want the right to vote on your top officers? And the people voted yes by a big margin. They got the right to vote. Then UAWD ran candidates. All its candidates won, sometimes by a very close margin because the old guys also campaigned hard. And so now the UAWD And allies have a majority on the executive board. And that's why they were able to do this new strategy that involved actually involving the members and writing in a very creative way.
0: Ferdinandson also credits the one-member, one-vote policy as crucial to achieving membership direction of the union.
2: A great push behind that came from the UAWD, Unite All Workers for Democracy. I know they pushed that hard. They're trying to reorganize it, to get it on a better path to doing what it was set out to do from the very beginning, to be here for the labor movement, to help the blue collar worker, the little guy or little woman. I got I guess little people now, I guess I can't say a guy or a girl anymore. I don't know, but you know, they've done wonderful things. They want to unite all workers for democracy. Now I'm actually a proud member I really do give them a lot of credit for where we are now. President Fain ran on uh, Members United slate, which was backed by the UAWD. And of course, a rank and file, you know, I can't take anything from the regular UAW rank and file. Of course, we were behind them as well. These are people who want to see change. They knew that something had to give. The UAW wasn't doing what we knew they could do. They can push the labor movement, and that is what President Fain has done. He has come out of the gates just charging, and he let the corporations know. He put them on notice immediately when he would say September 14th is not a reference point. It's a deadline, and he meant that, and he had to show them that he meant that. When he came out and shook the hands of the members instead of the hands of the corporations, he cut that tie with the corporations. He's letting the members know, I'm here for you. You are the highest authority, which he constantly states. He constantly makes that clear that the membership is the highest authority. And that's the first time I've heard that publicly ever in all my years. I've never seen anything like this. And he has he has woke up the globe. We had Brazilian brothers and sisters standing for us. We had brothers and sisters from Mexico standing up with us. The movement went global and it's still going. UAWD is great to have. The Members United is great to have. The members in general are great to have. But if you don't have someone leading us with the fire, with the the guts, with the gumption to go forward with what we need them to go forward with, all of that doesn't even matter. Everything fell into place, I feel, for a reason. It's our time. Like President Fain said, it's our defining moment. So it's time for change. It's time to show these corporations they can't keep bullying us. They can't keep making billions and billions of dollars every year, paying CEOs $29, $25, 21000000 million every single year. And then when it comes to us, we're broke. You can't have stock buybacks into the millions or the billions and keep telling the worker, we're broke, we can't afford to give you. You know, Fain's putting an end to that. He's putting them out on Front Street. He finally let people know what they make, what's going on. That needed to be brought to the light. That needed to be made public, I feel for the general public to know what's going on. And because of that, we did get a lot of support from non-union people. The American people in general, I think it was 76% or something like that, of the American people actually backed our movement.
1: Throughout this process, Ferdinand has clearly become a big supporter of UAW President Sean Fain and his change in tactics.
2: And that's what I like about President Fame, man. He's got that fight. He's um, got that flame he, under him. Before he ran for office, I had never met him. I had heard of him. I had heard that there was times where they had locked him out of different conventions and stuff like that because he would go against the grain. He would tell them, you know, this isn't right. This is wrong. You know, whatever he would be saying at the time. And they'd lock him out. He's been a rebel for a long time. And I did know that of him. So I listened to the debate and whatnot. And. I was able to get a hold of him. I was able to call him. He didn't answer when I called, but I'll tell you what, he called me back. He actually called me back and he talked to me and he took time with everything that he was doing. He took time out to discuss my personal situation. He didn't have to do that. And he did. And he made sense to me. I liked him. He was a straight shooter. He seemed straightforward. I couldn't get any lies from what he was saying. And I still haven't. Everything that he said he was going to do, he's done or tried to do. I have a great admiration for him. I always say, all aboard the Fane train, that's my thing, and I will ride with him until
3: the rails end.
1: Slaughter notes that the UAWD and Sean Fane still face internal opposition from the Old Guard in the Union.
3: I think there will still be attempts by the Old Guard to remain in power. They control most of the locals, at least in auto and most of the blue-collar locals, and they are very used to their old ways of doing things and saw the union as a way to rise into a job where you didn't have to deal with the members and could get a job on the international staff or the regional staff. So I think they will want to see that system continue and they will find ways to try to undermine Sean Fein and criticize the contract. And I'm not sure what all their arguments will be, but they will try to take advantage of people's discontent. Now, how far they will go with that it's hard to see because nobody thinks they would have done a better job. I don't see how you could possibly think
0: that. Ferdinand still has a lot of enthusiasm for where the union is going next.
2: I would like to see much more organizing coming into unions, not just the UAW, but any, any type of union that fits you know, your sector. Right now, we're out in Fremont, California. We're sitting up to organize Tesla and Toyota. You know, that's big. And that's because of this contract. People see President Fain. I mean, he came out like a bull. You can definitely compare him with Walter Ruther. He is the Walter Ruther of our time. And a matter of fact, how I look at it, he might be even a little tougher because the situations he is facing is much tougher. Walter Ruther didn't have NAFTA, so he didn't have where they could go overseas and build their product. So there was things that Walter Ruther didn't face that President Fain is facing and he's trying to correct. He has made it abundantly clear vocally out into the world that he understands the loss of the pensions and he understands the loss of the seniorities and stuff. And he has not forgotten that. We got to remember, he's only been in there seven months. There was only so much he could do in that short period of time. But give him time. See where he's at, at our next contract. That four and a half years from now, hopefully we'll have Toyota and Honda and them at the table. Because if we do, now we have a bigger bargaining chip. When we put them under our umbrella as well, we can start really talking. Now maybe we can
0: start talking about pensions and regaining our seniorities and, and things like that. Slaughter feels that the process of transforming the UAW has just begun.
3: It was very inspiring to me as a person who was a UAW member in the 70s and then covered it for labor nuts for all those years to see the change in members' self-confidence. All the people I talked to on the picket line, it was just like night and day from four years ago when they had a strike that didn't win very much. The confidence, the trust in their leaders, I mean, before people would just sort of stand around glumly on the line and wait for the international rep to come and tell them, how to get their strike benefits. This time, everybody seemed to feel empowered to talk about what the goals were. They talked about how much they liked Sean Payne, the president. They were very proud of him, but that helped make them proud of themselves as well. So there's an opening now for more people to feel that the union belongs to them, to get involved and make it be something that exists on the shop floor, not just down at the union hall. That's job one, is making the union belong to the members. And that will include getting rid of some of the holdovers from the old regime that exists at the local level. Number two, as we talked about, is organizing the unorganized. None of this would have happened if a reform caucus had not existed in the union that was able to take advantage of an opening and run and change their leadership. If the old leadership was in there, this would not be happening. So I would encourage workers in other unions to think about that. How can they organize from the bottom up?
0: Ferdinand Nansen gets the final word.
2: I I was just thrilled with the whole thing. Now I'm a little depressed. It's kind of over right now for this moment. And I'm like, I'm ready to go on to the next thing. I'm like, yeah, come on, let's do it. You know, organizing, That's that's the way to do it.
1: And that was Donia Ferdinandson, a member of the United Auto Workers, and Jane Slaughter of Labor Notes, discussing the UAW's highly successful stand-up strike in September and October that resulted in groundbreaking contracts with the Big Three automakers.
0: Thanks for listening to this special edition of Madison Labor Radio. I'm Frank Emsbach. Thanks to reporters Greg Jabosky and Keith Steffen for contributing to this program. Special thanks to damage control specialist and producer for this special, Joanne Powers, and members of IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective.
1: And I'm Joanne Powers. We'd also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with
0: Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark. And remember, next week, December 1st, WORT will be celebrating its 48th birthday with our annual Birthday Boost fundraiser, followed on December 10th at 7 p.m. with the Associated Party, WORT's Birthday Bash at the Burr Oak.